Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Living on Blockchain. Today we are speaking to Rourke from Thea Finance. He's the CTO there and Thea Finance is building a very, very interesting permissionless protocol. Basically, it's, think of it like a Web3 ecosystem, which is for creators and, uh, you know, by creators vis-a-vis investments. This is a very interesting conversation in which he went into details about how Thea Finance is going to disrupt this particular niche that we have in Web3. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Let's deep dive right in. Hi, Rock. How are you today? Thank you so much for taking out the time to speak to me. Hi. Yeah, thank you. I'm doing well. Lovely. So, you know, just for our listeners, just can you tell us a little about yourself and, you know, how you got into the Web3 space? Yeah, sure. So I think the place for me to start is, you know, I obviously in high school and, and when I was a little bit younger, I think my engagement with a lot of Web3 elements was maybe like using Bitcoin for some, uh, I wouldn't say the nicest, like above board purchases, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, obviously, regrettably, I probably had a lot more stacked around that I spent as opposed to, you know, held on to so but you know that's all okay. part of the fun right but um yeah yeah been there done but, that so you know yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly but i think really where, where things kicked off in a big way was in college so i, I studied computer science at dartmouth college and okay. it was a specialization in augmented and virtual reality design and development so it was really a computer graphics degree and during, you know, my time in the initial stages of that, you know, I really latched onto the tech and the concept of working at the knife's edge or something and kind of, you know, school projects turned into personal projects and projects for friends. Mm-hmm. And, and soon enough, you know, projects for friends turned into discord groups and then other discord groups. And, and I was kind of rubbing shoulders anonymously with, some of the guys who were doing some of the heavier lifting of a lot of leveraged digital assets earlier on. Mm-hmm. Like I, I kind of, I was a minted, you know, one or two sand, I mean, not sandbox, um, Decentraland plots, you know, back sort of 2018, 2017 territory. And, and then also, you know, after that, I was kind of always in the loop and, and kind of got to take things from the VR angle and, and as a result of kind of being in the loop, I was very much there for much of the initial like PF, big PFP mints, like the, you know, right. sort of like the eight mint on the NFT side of things. And, and then also like rolling that into like the DeFi summer and, and the kind of wild part of that. And, and, you know, obviously that's a lot of fun. Like, you know, you just get to be financially involved in something that just kind of goes a bit ballistic. Right. But I think, Coming from where I'd come from, I come from, I I really got to overthink a lot of the use cases for the tech, especially something like, you know, the NFT standard. And and I knew that there was going to be at least kind of expected that, okay, as with a lot of things in, you know, in, in Web3, if it gets adopted in a big way at all, there'll be a big wave of mm. speculation that kind of flows through and, and things get a bit nutty. And right. It'll be it'll be difficult to parse between what's legit and what isn't, and and that'll kind of, you know, drive the adoption cycle in a positive way, but then have some negative consequences and and all of that, and and so I kind of rolled 
with that for a while personally, and then was actually able to roll my personal portfolio into starting a, a hedge fund with some traditional finance people out of New York, which I kind of, which I run now, but really where yeah. I think, you know, what we're, what I'm kind of building with a couple of guys is kind of came to be was in, it started, the concept really started in July of of last year, okay. you know, I was in New York and let's see, a, a friend of mine who's actually become my co-founder, you know, I'd known him since freshman year, but he was at Columbia. He had come to me and, you know, we were talking about what I'd been doing in the NFT space because obviously at that point it was, it was quite, you know, if you were at all around, it was still, you know, it was a pretty hot thing and, you know, apes were around like, 15th at that point and and you know and and so and he in there and actually the more important thing is that there also been some notable rugs at that point as well too Um, and so he had come to me about this concept that his friend from high school had come to him about you know basically this protocol And mm-hmm. he just wanted me to give a look over about it. You know, he just wanted me to, cause I had a little bit of market experience, you know, he was just like, well, and also a bit of technical experience. So he was like, first off, is it feasible? And then also, you know, how would the, some, how would it fit in, in the market? And, and so I, I kind of had a look over about it and, you know, the initial bones of what it was, was geared towards something different, but then over time, you know, I kind of worked with the found the kind of brainchild originally, his name's Nikita and Lawrence, uh, just getting an advisory role, like suggesting, oh, here, you could do this, this, or this, or this. And mm-hmm. soon enough, the, I, we kind of figured out the, the addressability for this protocol was much larger and could actually solve some pretty significant issues in that were kind of popping up in the web three space you know many much of which to do with like accountability you know trust required in a trustless system and you know we kind of went from there and you know i think it it i think we started really building protocol out in in full september and we kind of have a look back since so it's kind of it was a really weird way for me to walk almost through the back door into into web three and kind of start in a really isolated area and then start as you know just somebody who all i did was computer graphics and then i sometimes i'd hand stuff off to people who were you know doing actually a lot of the technical heavy lifting and then i then came in as you know financially as an investor and then you know a collector and then you know i i kind of moved to the builder you know sort of stage and you know now ever since it's it, it's kind of been that's been full force and and so i've been you know all in on the on the whole thing wow that's quite a journey as you mentioned that you know it's it's, it's a roundabout way of getting into it but uh, you know you got into web3 all right so you know here on your in the white paper i was going through it it says that yeah. it's basically fair is like a decentralized uh, investing and trading protocol right where you are aiming to create this by the creators and for the creators and builders of Web3. Could you tell me a little more about this protocol? Like how can the creators be involved, you know, with this particular protocol and uh, has the testnet been released? Yeah, so our, we actually have our V2 testnet just launched to our alpha testers 
on Friday. Okay. Wow. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, so far, everything's going okay. So, um, but uh, the so the 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 whole ethos of the protocol it's about realigning incentives between okay. founders and investors, basically. So there's two parts of, of Thea, two main parts. It's, I want mm-hmm. you to think about it as like a two-tiered structure, really. Okay. There's this novel investment protocol, like the actual protocol layer. And then built on top mm-hmm. of that, there's the DAP layer. That's the actual social okay. investment platform. Now, okay. we'll talk about the protocol first. So the, the protocol, really, it's, again, yeah, about aligning incentives between founders and investors. And that means kind of aligning accountability as well. And so how do we kind of achieve that? You know, the biggest problem that we always, I found pretty much everybody found, you know, that interfaced with in Web3 was the concept of, you know, money up front, deliver later, right? So, you know, if it's an NFT drop, if it's an ICO, if it's whatever, basically every, all these investors are giving a company a ton of money up front on the assumption Mm. that they'll take that money and then give utility and yeah. build something for the asset that they get in return, right? So whether it's right. a token or an NFT, you're kind of giving that money on the assumption that what I get in return will appreciate significantly. And right. that's got a couple of problems, right? Like one is obviously the accountability, right? Like you could just, yep. you, we've seen it, right? You could just run away with the yeah. money. Like, you know, and there are some pretty famous examples in the NFT worlds, you know, whether it was Evolved Apes or Pixelmon, which was like 70 million. And, and, and obviously ICOs, it's, it's just every other day. Yeah. Um, yep. Now, then there's also the problem of the fact that, you know, when you're an investor, you know, a project and you launch an ICO or even an NFT drop as like an artist or a musician or something, you're kind of mm-hmm. adopting the shortest term pressure to perform right out of the gate, right? You know, mm-hmm. like if you, if you don't sell out your NFT mint, you know, if you don't, if your ICO doesn't have enough liquidity or some guy who's just looking to make a 5% margin comes in and buys up your initial sale and then dumps it on the market later, you basically, your company or your project is in the ground. There's no recovering from that. Right. And, And so it's just not conducive to healthy, healthy projects or company building. And so what we did is we basically created a protocol that creates a degree of separation between okay. the project's native asset and the investor. So we have this uh, smart contract. So when a person, when a hmm. project comes to the platform, what they do is they deposit a, a certain amount of their allocation of their native asset. Let's say it's a fungible token for simplicity's sake. Right. Yeah. They'll deposit, let's say 10% of that token into our smart contract. And then at that point, and then when an investor comes to invest in that project, they invest into the smart contract that represents the project. They're not buying the project's native asset directly from the project. And okay. basically they can invest, they can invest whatever cryptocurrency they want. And, and so when they do invest, the smart contract mints representative project tokens now the, the key okay. intuition there is that they're representative of the project you're not buying the product so like the synthetics actual... yeah like synthetics yeah think about it like that yeah and then 
because okay. we have that degree of separation and we're, we're, we're minting these synthetic tokens, we can set some rules for how those tokens behave and how the whole process behaves. So as a result, when somebody invests, not all of the money that they invest with goes to the project up front. It's actually a small amount. So a project sets what's called the commission rate that could be no higher than 20%. Let's say it's 5% in this example. And somebody in, invests $100. In this example, $5 would go to the project upfront. Now that that is their money to do with whatever they want. Hmm. The $95 gets locked in the smart contract. And basically the protocol uses that $95 for is if Mm -hmm. an investor is, you know what, losing, he doesn't really feel what the project's doing anymore. He's losing confidence in it. He can sell his representative share, his, his representative synthetic tokens, okay. back to the protocol without the need for mm-hmm. a counterparty. And the protocol will buy back his tokens. And in pure isolation, he'll, it'll throw, it'll give him back like basically the $95. Now, the way that the project sees that $95 is that the investor, after a certain criteria is met, which I'll go into a little bit later, but an investor has to Hmm. convert on his own time his representative tokens into the native asset. So basically he will convert his representative tokens foregoing that that guaranteed liquidity. And uh, when he does that, he gets the native tokens, a proportional share of the native token allocation in return. And then the bet $95 gets unlocked and sent to the project. So oh, as a result, okay. that, that basically, you know, because not the project's not receiving all the money up front. If it wants to receive right. the rest of that money to continue, it has to prove to investors that they're both above board and then also mm-hmm. can deliver and are building a project that's worth, you know, staying involved with. Mm. And so basically with that whole system, these representative tokens um, are also priced according to a predictable price algorithm. So we price these, each project on Thea has its own customized bonding curve AMM that's basically built into the smart contract. And so when any token is minted in the event of a sale, the next token bought or sold back to the protocol is more expensive. And then every, any time a those, one of those synthetic tokens is taken out of the market by way of a sale and effectively burned, the next token bought or sold is less expensive. So actually these representative tokens trade, you know, they can kind of trade and result in kind of organic price discovery over the long term. But the important intuition is that there's always a symmetrical relationship between the liquidity available in the pool of the project and the market cap of the project itself, because investors are basically underwriting their own liquidity. And so because we price this according to you know that mathematical bonding curve, we can create a mathematical 
cover in which there's always mm -hmm. enough liquidity in that project to cover the sale of every single representative project token that represents that project. So if all the investors decided to sell, nobody will ever be left holding the bag. You will always be able to sell for something. And, and so as a result, you know, there's always that symmetrical relationship between the inve total invested volume, aka the market cap, and the actual available liquidity. And, and investors can always kind of, they always have the option at the door. So, you know, that's kind of the, the intuition is that basically these projects, you know, you come to the platform, um, you set three main parameters as a project, one of which is your commission rate. Mm -hmm. The other of which is what we call a minimum funding threshold, which is okay. basically the minimum amount of money that your project needs to raise up front before you can start entering basically a proving stage, so how much money you need from that commission. And then the third one is the length of what's called your conversion period. So I spoke okay. about like how this kind of converting works, but the conversion, you know, we don't want to put that all into one event, right? Because then that, you know, induces a lot of FOMO. It, it kind of constricts things and bet, you know, it, you basically as an investor, you want to make sure that when you expose yourself to a project, you can do it at your own time and when you're fully confident. And so what happens is that a project sets what's called a conversion period of yeah. which it's advantageous for them to set it, you know, over a long period. So let's say it's over a year. Okay. Basically what that means is over that year, the allocation that they put into the smart contract, let's say it's that 10% of their token distribution, gets split up into 52 week chunks. So basically gets split up into 52 chunks, one per week. Okay. And so every week, investors have the opportunity to convert a proportional amount of their representative tokens. So again, 52 chunks of the, of the representative tokens do for a potential share of the real thing. And oh, if they okay. don't, then their allocation gets rolled into the next week and the next week and the next week. And the idea mm. there is that this whole period is like a vesting period, but instead of you know, the tokens being paid out like automatically, they're basically paid out when an investor deci you know, decides to commit to the project fully. And so that during that whole period, it's on the project to basically, you know, can constantly be proving themselves, whether it's like, you know, if it's a protocol, it's, you know, it's maybe a, a like beta test or a, you know, a code audit or the protocol, you know, being built, or if it's a play to earn game, it's like a demo or, a, you know, a trailer or some, or whatever, if it's an album, it could be a single. It, hmm. But the point, the point is, is that, you know, it's at that point, you're proving to investors that, okay, you know, like there's something here, you and, right. you know, and then investors can, you know, convert their tokens. And then that's when the project starts really receiving the majority of the money that they would okay. raise. Uh, okay. and, and then you kind of go from there. And um, so, yeah, so that's that's kind of the protocol layer. I know I, know I threw a lot at you there, but yeah. Um, <laughs> No, so um, let me let me break this down for our listeners, like yeah. you know, people who are like sort of chiming in. So this is, uh, you know, your protocol is basically 
think of it like an on-chain lock-in sort of a system, except that, you know, it's based on milestones. It's pretty much like if I'm getting this, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but in traditional yeah. funding on, or, you know, at times when people are doing like yeah. equity funding, there, there are milestone-based tra- uh, trenches, right? Like yep. there is a whole yep. amount of money that you raise and it's based on milestones. And once you achieve those or you hit those goals, only then yep. the rest of the money follows. So yep. you are doing this on-chain, correct? Yeah, that, yeah, that and yes. But the, the that's a good way to think about it. But the, the important thing to note is that there aren't specific milestones. The milestones are really for every, each individual direct investor can choose when they decide to give them the rest of the money. Okay. And so... So it's really a personal decision. It's like, it's just like, you know what? Like, I feel like I, you know, I like what this project is doing. I'm ready to commit. And that can be a totally personal decision. That decision is okay. never made for you. And, and if you don't, or you can say, you know what? I don't like what this project is doing. Let me get out. And then the protocol guarantees liquidity for everybody. So you can liquidate your investment sometimes for, always for less of a loss than you would have otherwise if you were taking if you're just holding the bag you could even leave flat on your investment you know like you never you know even made a loss to begin with or you could even potentially make a gain depending on where you invested initially and in the market and all that and, and so uh you know that that kind of idea of always having the door just creates a healthier you know situation for investors and right and so- yeah so but basically it's like it's it's good for the investors as well as the protocol, you know, the platforms themselves that are coming in to raise the monies because they always have that push to actually go ahead and build rather than, you know, sort of it can be a good motivating factor. Would you agree? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. The I think for the our pitch to a lot of projects is 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 kind of threefold. One of them is really the idea of like you guys don't have to worry about like nailing a 24-hour event anymore like this is our real it's a real big pitch to like musicians or artists or we're trying to maybe onboard onto web3 in some way but you know like if you're trying to do like an nft mint especially if it's a pfp or something if you don't sell out your mint in 24 hours or like 48 hours right you're yeah you're dead in the water right yep yeah and and that's just you know it's it, it's unnecessary and so for us we allow your project to organically accrue value over the long term with no there's no rush you know right there's no because you know your project only starts converting when you've raised you know when enough money has basically been locked in the project to begin with anyway so you know it's all about value accrual and organic price discovery and the kind of these elements of communities coming together around a project, but that can all happen in an organic way over the long term. And so it's a health, much healthier dialogue. And also a more important thing too, is because we have, we kind of shelter early stage projects from the, the greater speculation of the market, right? We kind of have this little cove where we have, you know, a little bit more consistent of a system, you know, if it's an NFT project, you know, you don't have to worry about these aspects of post mint where if your floor price starts to fall, you know, 5%, it, it almost looks like the end of the world, right? You got to, you know, suddenly it's red alert. And, and if you don't act now, and if you don't somehow do something, your project's dead again or something. It's if you, or if you make a yeah. mistake, if you, you know, if you make one mistake, 
your project's dead. You know, on, on our platform, Absolutely. you know, you can, you can take that dialogue within, with your community um, almost subconsciously, like in the way in which investors come in and come out over this whole period is a really good way of showing like, okay, you know, this is the direction I need to go. This is what I need to avoid. This is, you know, good and bad. And, and we've really, so that's why we really love the concept of social investing. You know, we, we have it everywhere in a white paper. We have it everywhere on a website. And we think it's a phrase that's been thrown around a lot, especially in Web3, but it hasn't really been defined. And, and we really think it, that element of network-based investing or communities coming together around a project where it's, you know, you, you take an active participatory role in the, in the project and community success along with your investment is really an important aspect. And, and so we really gear the platform for that. And, but that platform, you know, and that environment can only exist if you have the necessary, like, you know, parameters for it to do so. And that's yeah. really what the protocol is all about. Interesting, very interesting. So then, you know, we can think of this like a republic, but uh, perhaps, you know, on chain and with a certain community element to it that, you know, you're kind of easing it out for the projects themselves and kind of opening a few doors for them, right? Because even though Web3 is it's a small niche and, you know, it's a global community, but then again, people who are coming in from Web2, they don't know what are the kind of elements that go into Web3 because they're so drastically different as against, uh, you know, what was happening in Web2. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like we actually really, we're building this platform and the protocol as well to, to help onboard the next, you know, you know, 10, 20, 30% of the world that onto this space, right? And, and right. you know, we know that there are a lot of prohibitive elements. Like one, if you're trying to invest in something in Web3, there's so many things you have to juggle. If it's like, a, you know, if you're exactly. investing, you know, by buying something on a DEX, you have to think about like the project, but then also the economics of the DEX, how much is in the liquidity pool? Like who's, is a third party liquidity? Who's offering the liquidity? Like, who owns what? Like, what's the tokenomics? Like, you know, there's so much that could go into your investment that's that's kind of white noise almost. And um, we try to eliminate a lot of that, at least the very earliest stage. So all you have to worry about really is just, well, do I like what this project's doing? Do I like the vision? Do I like the team? Do I like, you know, the product? Um, yeah. And that, you know, drives There, there are so many things to actually check. Yeah, exactly. There's so much due diligence that a user needs to do. So you kind of yeah. like doing it for them and they would also come with that kind of confidence, right? Yeah, so a, a really important thing you said there about due diligence. So I'm gonna speak a little bit on the platform side of things now. So there, as I mentioned, there's kind of a two-tiered structure. Now, hmm. think of the, the platform as having a two-tiered structure in and of itself. There's projects and then above that, we have something that they have things that we call collectives. Now, what we've done okay. is we're effectively decentralizing the due diligence process. So as we've mm -hmm. seen with a lot of, you know, like launch pads, for example, launch pads, we think are a really antiquated solution to like web free fundraising, because if you launch pads are a lot like accelerators, they're kind of reskins of that. They're a lot like incubators in a kind of a similar way in how they function in that what ends up happening is that you have, a, you know, a, a launch pad, let's say something like, uh, like Avalanche on Avalanche or like finance launch pad or something. 
you have thousands of projects, like thousands, mm. that all apply to this launch pad. Right. And this launch pad is this totally centralized form of due diligence. And they got a team, you know, it could be like five or 20 people that do the due mm. diligence on projects. Yeah. And as a result, they can only really address so many projects. They're probably chain specific. And then also like sector specific, like they're like, you know, they can only, because there's, they can only really worry about crypto projects and then really only certain kinds of like DeFi protocols, maybe, you know, they can't, they can't like worry about, you know, they can't think about play to earn games. They can't think about, you know, these musicians or they, you know, that that's just out of their possible range. And, and like, don't get me started on a lot of like the micro investments that have started in crypto. Um, yeah. And so as a result, we wanted to create a system in which we could have a platform that addresses all the verticals individually. So as a result, we created these things called collectives. And so what collectives are, is they are DAOs that mm. do due diligence and actually onboard projects onto the platform. So basically when I create a project, initially my project is unlisted. And in order for my project to become investable, I basically apply to what is called a collective. And the collective can you know, look at my project, look at what I'm doing or whatever, do whatever due diligence that it wants to do. And then basically if it gives me a thumbs up and then I give a thumbs up that I wanna be on that collective, I then get onboarded onto that collective and I become, and that collective becomes the sole destination on the platform for me to invest and in, for anybody to invest into that project. And the intuition here is that collectives act as like sponsors. They're basically, you know, putting their sign of approval behind this project, like, hey, we think this project is worthwhile, you can invest in it. And as a result of doing that, collectives set a commission rate, a flat commission rate for every project that they onboard so mm -hmm. let's say a, a commit again they said five percent so any single time you know a dollar goes into any project underneath you know that collective they take five percent and so it's revenue basically uh so they're rewarded for onboarding mm. high quality projects that receive consistent investment volume and they're punished if they Very don't you know because um and so the the but the the point there is, is that they can be these collectives anybody can create one they can be around the tightest verticals as you want you know let's say i'm just an expert i'm the i'm so passionate in you know play to earn games but more specifically like play to earn idle rpgs like a really specific genre right and that's all uh, that's like that's my bread and butter. I'm, I know all about it. And I know the market. I know everything. And I know what's a good project and a bad project. I know what's a good game. And so, and a project can come to me, you know, let's say I'm somewhat influential in the space. And instead of just shilling their project on Twitter, you know, I on, they can onboard it onto my collective. And you kind of get that combined element of here's the seal of approval. I put my name behind this. But then also you know, I give it an immediate destination to invest into that project. And I stand to earn from doing a good job as a curator, basically, um, and onboarding, you know, legitimate good projects. 
And yeah. So and like, so, you know, if, yeah. if I want to just butt in and ask you for the other side of things, like, okay, you know, you have these collectives and you have yeah. these investors, which are like end users uh, right now. Uh, are you actively onboarding either like users as well as like perhaps DAOs or creators? On, yeah, I'm really, yeah, I'm really well. glad you asked that. Yeah, so yeah. so we, a big part of our go-to-market strategy is, you know, we have three things we have to address. We have the collectives, which are curators. Mm. We have the projects, you know, themselves. And then we have, you know, investor, the investor community. Obviously, <laughs> In the, in the full state of the project, it's a fully permissionless platform. Anybody can create a project. Anybody can create a collective. Anybody can invest in anything okay. as long as you have the wallet. However, okay. we want to, and we have a solid incentive structure to make sure that quality rises to the top. However, we want to come out of the gate, you know, with a, with a, when we hit the permissionless launch, you know, with leading the way with quality, basically. And that means from every stage. And so as a result, you know, we've spoken to a lot of DAOs, crypto communities, like dev teams, also platforms in and of themselves about potentially being part of our basically beta launch. Um, and so uh, we're wants to put a, to make a long story short, how we're moving to our permissionless stage is we're decentralizing and stages so we start okay. you know our, our alpha launch when we push to mainnet is basically okay. the platform becoming the principal collective so we we onboard a pre-curated list of about 10 to 15 projects of which this, we're really happy with the short list and and then about a month and a half later we'll do our beta launch in which mm -hmm. we onboard a curated selection of collectives basically we've gone out and we've made some partnerships with some bigger organizations and DAOs, in which you know they can become some of the earlier curators and they and they already have a short list of projects that they want on board and then we'll hit the permissionless launch in which anybody can now create a project anybody can now create a collective but we've grown the investor base to meet those that state those stages kind of throughout that whole process um, so kind of to give some examples, some of the, uh, one of the big addressable markets that we're trying to address is the, you know, art and music, uh, industry, because, you know, we love the idea, like fractionalized music NFTs being leveraged for royalty rights. Like we like that idea of, you know, okay, you can fractionalize an NFT that represents a song or an album. And then, you know, with some, a little bit of infrastructure, down the road created by like Spotify or, you know, YouTube, even you can divert the streaming revenue into that fractionless NFT and then partition it correctly. Right. We, we really like that. We think that's like a really, really cool, um, that is you know, very vehicle cool. for, yeah. yeah, for, for musicians to kind of, again, avoid the middleman to not have to like be yeah. to kind of screwed from a, like a record label or something. And Right. But for so for our platform, you know, the intuition there is that like a musician wants to create an album, but they need a little bit of money for some studio time. And so they come to our platform, they create a project, they allocate a fractionalized NFT to our to the smart contracts. And then, you know, they hit their minimum funding threshold. They release a couple of songs and everybody converts. The album's created. And then the ownership of that album from terms of revenue rights is distributed as well. And 
So as you know, that's like a, a really nice way in which, again, they that's can. A, that's a wonderful use case. Yeah, that's a wonderful. Yeah, use case. yeah, and and kind of you know completely leaves out the middleman, and they would because this is so like you know we are in tech. So we understand all this, right? But, you know, yeah, for people yeah. who are perhaps just creators and they're already doing so much heavy lifting, right? They're creating something yeah. beautiful. This yeah. is not their domain expertise. So, you know, for you to come in and give them that kind of simplifying it for them, that, that yeah. is a beautiful use case. Yeah, exactly. It, it's just, you know, it's, and it's more important about for them, like if they wanted anybody to own something that they've created, it's the community that supported them, right? You know, that's the, that's right. a big thing. And and so that's kind of what we want to allow. Now, there are platforms that, you know, do this, that support musicians or support artists in onboarding onto Web3. They'll help them, like Hi-Fi Labs is a good example. Soundmint's a good example, both of which we've spoken to. And, you know, they are open is a good example. They, they basically onboard, you know, they, they help, a musician with like an nft drop or nft utility or building out that whole ecosystem but the problem is is that they can only they have to address each artist or musician one at a time right. because it takes so much resources so much effort to fulfill a successful nft launch mm-hmm. because it's a one day event it's like if you don't get it right and you don't fulfill it, then it's all been a waste of time. And the investors who, who did commit feel a little cheated out. And the absolutely and, and the project doesn't go anywhere. And that and that's a really, you know, that's that really constricts these platforms and these communities from the amount of people that they can support. So they look they see something like us as okay, we can still support prod like these artists with a lot of the technical elements a lot of the you know how what do you got how do you want to build your utility advice all this kind of stuff promotion and but we can onboard more artists at a time because they can accrue the value of their user base in their project over time basically and 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 so it's not like a you know, it's a in a, and it's a much healthier way, and, and investors, you know, because again, it's they can always sustainable. Also, yeah, 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 it's exactly. A sustainable so that, way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's sustainable, and it's and you know, they don't have. Yeah, exactly. It's not this high stress thing where they're constantly moving from yeah. person to person to person. They can take it in a much more organic way, and so we, you know, sound Hi-Fi Labs is a really example of what may become one of our principal collectives, is along with Soundmint, and we love Soundmint because they've been doing a lot of the heavy lifting on like fractionalized NFTs for royalty rights and, and mixing that with the legal elements and all of that. And, and also art and visual music NFTs coming together. And, and, and so then, but then beyond that, we have some other ones, like a, a good example of another industry vertical that we're trying to target is our basically metaverse developers. So, you know, we love okay micro and we love micro investments you know we think that's a big part of web3 where not everything's a company right like not everything's a a company not everything's like a you know a project that'll be this huge long-staying thing for the end of the of the end of times there's so many situations as, as an investor where it's just it's a quick in and out thing right it's or it's a it's a one-time thing it's like we're 
you know, I'm buying a plot in the sandbox with like 10 other guys or whatever. And, and we're, you know, we're fractionalizing it or, you know, we're building, you know, a, like a, you know, a, we're building a, a mansion for, for Snoop Dogg and sandbox or something. And it's, it's just a quick, it's a quick thing. It's like just a one-off in many ways. And, you know, of course you can hold that asset for the long term, but it's not like a company. That's basically what I'm saying. Mm. It, it, it comes mm. to, it comes to completion. And so, you know, metaverse developers, you know, guys who come into things like NFT worlds or sandbox or Decentraland and basically build our architectural firms for them, you know, really cool teams. So there's stuff like, like Meta Labs or Webverse are guys we've spoken to. And, you know, they have so many projects for like, hey, you know, we're a team that is you know, we want to build on this plot. We have a, we want to put in a bid to build for this person, but, you know, we need a bit of money to hire, you know, two more architects or whatever. And then the intuition there is that you then distribute the rights, the either the payment or the ownership of the final project or whatever to the investors. And, but again, the, the people who know that industry best are the, developers themselves and so they would create mm. the collective around that and so that's where it's kind of like by the creators for the creators and then also absolutely another you know another industry is like the you know or that we love is dow tooling so you know obviously it's all the rage to create dows of around millions of mm. different things and we love that and we and we especially love dows as a solution for non-profits you know making sure that they're their financials are more transparent than they currently are in the world. Mm. Mm. But, and so there are platforms like XDAO is a really good example that are DAO tooling systems. You know, they basically help DAOs and give them the tools to manage their AUM, like manage their treasuries, manage governance, you know, in a, in a nice and easy interface. But again, there's the one problem that they can't really address with every single DAO that that comes to the platform, which is raising the actual money. You know, like if you yeah. want to have a DAO that has a treasury, whether it's an investment DAO or or a you know a, even a nonprofit or even like a DAO that's trying to purchase something or whatever, there's that aspect of pooling the money and then distributing distributing the DAO tokens accordingly. They they look at a system like us as another way for those DAOs to perpetually come together and then for the money to be brought together and then the DAO tokens that represent the governance and everything to be distributed accordingly. So that's a really exciting thing for us too, because you know, you can look at a DAO that's, you know, whether it's something that was like Constitution DAO or, you know, a lot of DAOs that were like MBA DAOs or whatever. And but you can, you know, that community can come together over time. It's not again like a one shot mm-hmm. only thing. And then when, mm. when the community's ready and the money's there and everybody's ready to go, they can convert to commit to it, basically. And then the DAO goes off to do whatever it wants to do. And, and it's a really efficient and healthy way for these DAOs to assemble. And so then, but again, you know, who are the guys that know what some of the best DAOs are going to be from a functional standpoint, governance standpoint, like an objective standpoint, all of that it's something like a DAO tooling platform, like XDAO, you know, that's their bread and butter. That's what they know. 
And so mm. they can start the principal collective around, you know, DAOs or DAO formation and then onboard DAOs that they're passionate about and or that they feel should get support and deserve support and then earn as a result of doing so. Wow, that's very interesting. Actually, you know, uh, post this particular recording, I'm going to connect with you, drop your line. There's been a DAO idea that we've been tinkering with, like an investment DAO, but for basically underrepresented founders. And uh, mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, yours is the platform we can look at because, uh, you know, you guys can uh, take over the, uh, basically the part that will cause us headaches and we can build on the network and, you know, you can, you can help us with the nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah, of course. Love, love, love to, you know, throw some things around. Yeah, and, you know, one more thing about, you know, I think like that was a big, that was a, you kind of said something there that's, that's really important is as a founder, all you want to like building something is hard enough. Like right. building yeah. something that's worthwhile is hard enough. You know, for us as a company, you know, in a platform, we're in the middle of, you know, raising a seed round. Right. And right. it's been an extraordinarily frustrating process. You know, it, it's, yeah. You know, you're speaking, it seems like you're all your chances of whether or not you continue on as a project and get to where you want to be or you, you fail are because it's a Tuesday and the, the VC partner you're talking to had a fight with his wife or something and, and <laughs> he's just not feeling it that day. It doesn't want to come yeah. or something or whatever. You yeah. Know? Obviously, yeah. there are, you know, these people try and treat things and be objective, but they have, you know, they're, they're, they're good at what they do, but it can seem like there's so many things that are just unnecessarily complicated and also detract from you as a builder. Like, you know, we've had to put so much focus into our raise that we were, right. you know, that we're, you know, we have to check ourselves to make sure that we're not neglecting the development of the actual Right. And no, that I think almost just, always happens, right? Like if you're raising right. money, that's like a full time job, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's something you shouldn't have to consider as much. Like, sure, yeah. you yeah. want to make sure that you, you know, if you're, if you do have investors that you give them confidence in all that, but that should come from your product. And so we really want to make sure that creators can, can all they really have to worry about is just and yeah. um and and, no, you and know, also just... it's it's great that just sort of you know what you you said that you know what raising money is uh, so no building something is hard enough and then you know when you're going out and doing this entire race thing and i've done like several uh, races and i know how bloody hard it is right what you said that you know mm -hmm. at times the other person is having a bad day and you bear the brunt for no reason right and then it kind of yeah. it kind of derails your motivation so what you're building here is like facilitating, right? For these companies and these platforms, it becomes a little easier, helping hand. And I think Web3 is so much about just that, you know, sort of uh, leveraging the collective intelligence uh, as well as the community to make sure that we are able to build, you know, good things and beautiful solutions faster. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that, that was a, a much what we thought was a lot of the original vision behind these kind of decentralized systems. and. And, you know, the initial ICOs really spoke to that, right? You know, they were great. You know, I think everybody, because everybody involved was passionate about what was going on. And it was, a you know, kind of a tighter community. But, you know, there were some great companies that just came out of ICOs, you know. And But, right. we, but obviously, over time, you know, the, 
because there were misaligned incentives and misal- inefficient capital systems, you know, that dialogue started to get polluted a little bit. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, still through a trustless system, not through a centralized means, we brought investors and founders back to eye level. You know, we really think that that's what Web3 is all about. And, you know, we want to make sure we can enforce that in a trustless way and allow for that kind of healthy dialogue to occur. And, and another kind of aspect to, to note is that, you know, when I speak about collectives, collectives mm. are also an investable asset on the platform. So basically we've duplicated the pricing system for these representative synthetic product tokens for collectives. But mm-hmm. when you invest into a collective, you receive what are called collective tokens, shocker. Mm. <laughs> and these collective tokens can be bought, sold back to the, to the protocol in the same way. However, mm. they have an extra layer of utility to them. So collective tokens can be staked back into the collective that they represent. And when you do that, you get two things. You get proportional governance rights in the basically in the thumbs up, thumbs down decision. So you get your voting power for, yes, I like this project, let's onboard it, or no, this project shouldn't be on our collective, is proportionally weighted to how many tokens you've staked in, in proportion to the whole. And then also you get a proportional share of the revenue that the collective earns. So these collectives are really, they're, they're designed to grow into communities you know they they may start around like by one person or a community of people around a vertical but then the idea is that they accrue all the people that are passionate around that vertical and they all can so kind of take be part. a little like a syndicate perhaps well, yeah school, kind you know, of perhaps, yeah in, right? in a sense okay. yeah but you know they because the these collective tokens the supply can be infinite even though the price get will get it more and more expensive so they can be prohibitively priced eventually in theory these collectives can grow you know they can grow and mm. we, we really want them to grow around the, the identity that they were initially formed by and because they grow and they accumulate you know more members the accountability of the collective becomes more robust because not only as a person staked into a collective do you potentially stand to earn from the revenue that the collective earns from onboarding good projects, but also you're the holder of an asset that can appreciate or depreciate based on that performance as well. And so we've designed the, the platform from an interface wise to be both extremely easy to use. We want it to be really clear, really transparent, really easy you know, only relevant information, user-friendly, you know, human-centered design, all of that. But also transparent is a really right. big part of what we're doing. So anytime you go to a project, you know, the, the project's page, you can see how the project's tokens performed in terms of price. You can see how many investors are in the, in the project, who's invested into the project, for how much each individual investor is invested. Like, in, you know, like I own 20% of the project tokens, this guy owns 5%. How many of the tokens that X investor has converted once you get to that stage? And it's the same really for collectives. You can see who owns how much of the collective tokens, who has who staked how much, what their voting power is, you know, what their rev share is. 
And, hmm. um, and then as a result, you can see like every, the performance of every single project that that collectives onboarded as well, because collectives as a financial vehicle, they actually act very similarly, it, albeit in an analogous way to an ETF. They're kind of a de facto ETF because what they do is because they set that flat commission rate for all the projects underneath them. And that, that commission is from basically determined by investment volume. Mm. The collective, if you were to invest into it, is a lot like investing in, you know, into the S&P. You're basically betting on the performance of like 20 projects, you know, can see or however many projects that are underneath that collective. And if any one of those projects starts to, you know, is basically cut off because maybe the project is starting to look like a rug and investors just get out or they don't like the project anymore and they sell and then nobody starts buying it anymore, that project basically becomes like a dead sell but it's still on the collective and it's for everybody to see it's, you know, so if a collective decides, you know, onboard something that's bad, you know, whether it's malicious or just of poor quality, they are negatively impacted by that because, you know, they, they earn less revenue. And as a result, fewer investors want to basically potentially get a, a cut of that revenue because there isn't as much to go around and it costs too much because the project, that collective token is now priced too high. And so some people would start offloading their collective tokens because it's not a worthwhile investment anymore. And as a result, they start to depreciate and so on and so forth. So it's basically you're incentivized twofold as a collective to onboard high quality projects that receive consistent investment volume. And that one of that is in the form of the revenue that you earn as a member of that collective but then the second part is the tokens that you hold. You know, it's like holding stock in a company. Right. But that stock price isn't driven off of pure speculation. There's a clear and precise pricing mechanism that, you know, is basically, you know, conducive of who's present and who isn't present in that community. So it's in your best interest to both want to entice more and more people to want to come to your community, but also entice investors to invest in your projects, but you have to act in investors' interest. So the, the, the important thing there is that for both collectives and projects, they are acting in investors' interests always, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, their priorities aren't just, let me raise as much money as I can for one right, reason. Yeah. They're always mm-hmm. making sure that they're giving investors the most amount of confidence in them. And so, as results, you know, because anybody can create a collective and anybody can create a project, we envision like a competitive atmosphere on the platform being created, right? Like, you know, obviously a guy will create a collective around, you know, play to earn games, but I'm sure another right. person will do the same. And then it's about, well, which collective is better? It's like, okay, well, the, right. the collective that's better is the collective that onboards the better projects. Then it's like, Absolutely. okay, so now as collectives, I'm competing for better projects. Okay, but then also as a project, I want to get onboarded onto the hottest collective because, you know, that I know what that means from a social standpoint. You know, if there's a really influential people in that collective, you know, if they all basically give their sign of approval to my project, it's like the ultimate, like, thumbs up. 
but also I know that that collective gets a lot of investment volume. So if I want my project to, you know, to get a lot of investors, I want to be on a good collective. And so basically collectives are competing against each other to get the best projects and projects are competing against each other to get onto the best collectives. But the important thing is that they're competing for investors. They're competing for investors interest. And so everything has to be tooled for both giving investors the conviction to invest and then more importantly, giving them the further conviction to stay invested and then more importantly, convert their investment. Wow, okay. So, you know, to like, because now we're kind of running out of time, but I'm just going to summarize yeah. this so to the best of my ability. We, you know, what you're creating with here is basically a Web3 ecosystem for creators, investors, and as well as perhaps syndicates at some point yeah. to ensure that, you know, the fundraise process does not take away from beauty and, uh, you know, the enjoyment or the journey associated with creation. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, that, that's really, we're, we want to help fuel the next stage of Web3 adoption. And a lot of that has to, you know, in order to do that, we have to break down a lot of barriers to entry, whether it's a, as a yeah. builder, creator, or an investor, or a community member, or whatever, curator. You know, there's so much of this kind of community discourse or community-centric global scope that we love about you know, Web3 and, and we want to take all the best elements that it has to offer and mm. make sure that that can help kind of drive forward, you know, the next, you know, 100 million people to come, you know, and participate, basically. Wow. Yeah, this is brilliant. Absolutely. So, you know, so quickly, I, I would love to get your thoughts on what is like the best use case that you've seen for NFTs so far, like, you know, the one project or, you know, a use case that you, you know, you're really rooting for. So my, I, yeah, so I've overthought a lot of this, you know, obviously I, I spoke about that and, yeah. you know, I, I think there's, if, if I were to kind of answer the cop out a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. how I think NFT implementation will be going forward is, you know, look, it's fun to talk about these crazy valued NFTs, like, a, you know, that are up in the clouds, but really it'll be at the you know, the, the ground level, like the price points of like zero to $50 where they have like isolated, really leveraged utility, you know, like, you know, an example is like, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, ticketing for a concert, like it's just hmm. more intuitive to put that into the form of an NFT than, you know, a traditional like ticket, because, you know, you can then leverage that ticket post attendance like whether it's the po app or it can be perpetual it could be whatever like a season's past and then that can be then you know because you own it outright you can then transfer it to somebody else efficiently and you can give it to somebody else and, and there's much more kind of community integration with that but you know i think my favorite brick and mortar example like i like to think of the most brick and mortar thing like physical traditional thing that nfts could be you know utilized for because you know i love gaming i love a lot of these other things like high leverage digital industries but i like something really traditional and physical and and i think that an industry which is a little bit of infrastructure that could totally Hmm. use nfts in a huge way something like the wine industry 
when you have a let's say a vintage right you know vintages are they're barreled and bottled for you know each year for the growth right so you have good years bad years famous years um so like 85 is a really good year and like the pinnacle of wine for a lot of people is like the 80 you know it's like an 87 or 85 like rothschild you know those bottles are insanely expensive but they're also just apparently amazing or whatever but the problem is is that nobody knows in the market, how many bottles in the world are left? They okay. can assume, they can assume that, you know, like there are a, a thousand bottles or 5,000 bottles or whatever, but each bottle that's sold in an auction or peer to peer is kind of traded off of that imperfect information. Mm-hmm. But if you had a, a, with again, a little bit of physical infrastructure, the idea that with each bottle, each bottle was assigned a unique, you know, NFT basically. And then when that bottle was uncorked, that NFT is then burned. The, that, the idea of then that basically that being a signal that that bottle has been consumed to the world, that like one bottle being opened will always have an effect on the market because you're solving that information failure, basically. And I can think of like, whether it's vineyards or auction houses or like even individual collectors loving that concept of knowing the global like um, scope of something like wine, because it's so like each individual um, like year or for a for a vineyard, uh, like almost operates as its own like sub collection of like an NFT basically. And so, if you know that there's only a thousand bottles left of, you know, eighty five, yeah, then that's like that means a lot. You know, that creates the scarcity, Absolutely. and those that those bottles are valued in a much different way. Now, the challenge yeah. is is that you know there's only so much the blockchain can do there. Like it can it can do a lot of the it can assign the you know, the unique addresses and everything, but in order for it to function fully, and this goes for a, a lot of NFT implementation, like it, it's not a software problem, it's a hardware problem. There needs to be some hardware like hurdle in terms of like physical infrastructure that needs to mm-hmm. work to validate the then blockchain to basically function with the blockchain side um but yeah i know if we clear that hurdle there's so much like fascinating implementation use cases you can use you know nfts for and so yeah i mean you know obviously i i'm like like my hedge fund we we deal our primary assets in nfts so we deal in all leverage kinds like whether it's pfps or play to earn NFTs or like versus like high leverage, you know, creator, you know, coins basically. And, you know, we love all that implementation, but, you know, I, I like looking weirdly at, you know, if I were to take an industry that's as old as something as the wine industry and give it a legitimate use case for blockchain, I think that's like, a, that's something that I feel like they would jump for hand over fist. Absolutely, something like what Vino is doing, I believe. No, they they are putting in uh, investments in wine, etc. I think on chain. Yeah, but, exactly. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that is like an interesting use case. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, you know, as I said earlier, that you know, we are running short on time, but I will. Uh, this is like my 
last question for this particular episode. And this is something I ask almost everyone who comes on the show. So, you know, because this podcast is all about kind of making sure that the jargon gets out of the way and, you know, people who are getting intimidated about Web3, blockchain and crypto, they feel like, okay, this is like uh, probably a devil that they can tame as well. What would be your advice for people who are like transitioning from Web2 to Web3 or people who, you know, how can they perhaps start living on blockchain? Right. You know, so it it may sound a little bit strange because for me, I I think I, I don't know if I did it in an atypical way, especially for a lot of quote unquote earlier guys. I wasn't nearly as early as some other people. So my advice always, especially when it comes to anything investment wise, is start with the tech and then work okay. back to the asset. Now that sounds really scary, right? That's like crap. Yeah. I need to start with the the most complicated thing, and then I can right. think about the product. No, I don't want you to think about it like that necessarily. I want abstract the tech as much as you possibly can. There are a lot of ways you can learn about blockchain just in terms of what it offers you as a consumer, like or what it offers you that doesn't currently exist in the world. Like NFTs, right. for example. Like there's a million things that NFTs can do. But a really easy way to look at one use case for NFT is just I want you to imagine you can at if you had the ability at any point in the world to know exactly where the ownership of a thing is. You know, if I hmm. sold a hundred paintings or a hundred apples, let's say even whatever, I want to know who owns all of them and where they are in the world. And NFT allows you to do that at any time, right? Wow. Now, yeah. then it's like, then, okay, then it's like, okay, if I had that information, what can I do with it? And then that mm-hmm. is where an element of utility comes into play. That's like, okay, that's how you can see something like Board Ape Yacht Club, you know, leveraging their NFTs for like token gated events or token gated sales for the other side metaverse, you know, or, you know, whatever, like, you know, you can, that is, you can then start thinking about, okay, how is this project or this company using that like opportunity and leveraging that opportunity. And that's where you can get really creative and fun. Like as new tech or whatever Mm -hmm. as it is, I really like to think about it as from an economic standpoint and from a consumer standpoint, it's super old school. It's really still web free is going back to the basics. Yeah. Yeah. It's more about the people, the projects, the communities than anything else and so but if you want a good way to feel confident about what you're doing is just try and start with what the technology whether it's blockchain like fungible tokens you know like bitcoin or ethereum or or non-fungible tokens or whatever has to offer you Mm. or or for your particular passion like if i'm a gamer Like if all I like is video games, right? You know that is, uh, you know, like I can like play to own is a great concept. Like I can now own the skin that I, you know, had. It's not like I'm paying for it. It's not some crazy vehicle to earn money. It's just 
I have this thing now and I can do what I want with it. Like if I play World of Warcraft or something, like you know the concept of what it means to like own something in an RPG and what it feels like. And all yeah. like something like an NFT allows you to do is to solidify that even more. And so then it's like, okay, well, what kind of game would I want to see if I could do that for real? Like, and, and, it, and it could almost work in between games or something. And, and, you know, so if you have a particular passion, just try and think about what those kind of opportunities, you know, how they can appeal to something like, you know, the, what you're passionate about. And then if you're looking to invest or get involved, go look out for the communities or projects or people that feel the same way and are and are kind of building something to fill that vision or to fill that, you know, that that utility in that way. And then you'll find like the community for you. You know, for me, I again I started in VR, you know, design. And so one of the first things I used to do in college was I would repurpose video game models for something like VR chat. So I'd like rip a model from a video game and then re-rig it, reskin it, you know, customize it slightly. And then I go into something like VR chat in like a chat room and just hang out with my model. And it was kind of fun. Or I do it for friends or whatever. And that was a roundabout way for me seeing like a utility for something like an NFT. It's like, oh, if I, you know, created a model, like a rigged model, and then, you know, stored it, you know, in an NFT and then basically transferred its utility to whoever owned it, then it's like, you know, that's like an element of ownership, but then also identity, you know, it's like, okay, this is my identity in, in some ways. And, and that's just a really small use case, but that was something that I was passionate about. And that got me involved with people at, you know, Decentraland, and then that moved into the next thing, into the next thing. And then before I knew it, I was involved in the whole. You're right. So, you know, like, this is a very good piece of advice that you know, find what you're, where your interests align and go back to uh, look at the tech and then perhaps go back to the token itself as well as the utility. This is good advice for people who are looking into investing and it doesn't have to be intimidating. Like you said, you know, you, you know, you need to sort of align your values with the platforms or their investments and then it kind of falls in place. So that is yeah. like really wonderful piece of advice, Rourke. Before we wrap this up, any parting thoughts? No, I mean, I'm just really, uh, thank you again for having me on. You know, I always appreciate having an opportunity to talk about, you know, what we're building here and what we're trying to do, but then also just, you know, everything that we like about the space, you know, there's, you know, we're not okay. trying to be a, the be all and end all solution. Like part of what we love about, you know, Web3 is that you can just be a node in the same way that like you have validator nodes and, and mining nodes, like on the actual blockchain, you could just be kind of a node, a component in the greater ecosystem. Like we want to help people out with a part of their lives. You know, we don't feel like we're the solution. We know, we know we're not the solution to everything. We know that there'll be projects that can do fine at the, on their own. And we know that there are people mm. that can, that'll do a different thing. We know that will people that'll use our platform that go somewhere else. And then people that will come from somewhere else, use our platform and go somewhere else as well. And, and we're okay with that. We actually, that's what we really, we want to be that, you know, we don't want to be something that pushes, you know, themselves on, on users or, or tries to be like this one-stop shop for everything. Like, yeah, okay. We can be a one-stop shop for a lot of founders to, to, mm -hmm. to at, at a point in their lives, but 
you know, we just want to be a, another part of the next stage of, you know, Web3 or the internet or the digital worlds. And, you know, if we can occupy our little space and help some people out along the way, then that's all we can really ask for. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Lovely. Thank you so much, George. This has been a very insightful conversation. I'm very excited for you guys and what you're building on Thea. I think this can be very revolutionary in terms of creating an, an, a very cohesive ecosystem for investors as well as platforms that are looking to raise. Thank you once again and you know, really all the best for all your endeavors. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.